Hebrews chapter 1. We have before us the most theologically rich book in all the New Testament in Hebrews. We have perhaps the most difficult to understand book in the New Testament in Hebrews. It is the single book in the New Testament that the most has been written about. More commentators have made comments about the book of Hebrews. More authors have written on the book of Hebrews than any other book in the New Testament. It's an incredible book, and I believe that as we study it for the next 300 years, (laughs) the Lord is going to bless us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that is before us. Lord, thank you for the Gideons and their ministries. We just heard that they're getting places, uh, into places like Syria with the word of God and getting the word of God to our armed forces, our civil servants, our schools, our college campuses, hotels. Lord, we thank you for their ministry and we pray blessings on it. And we pray that you'd bless the word of God as it goes forth. The men and women would be transformed by the power of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit through the word of God. And we want to be a part of that work. And so as we begin a new journey here in the book of Hebrews, we ask, Lord, that you would bless us immensely. We're greedy for your blessings because we know that your heart is overflowing with good things for us. And we want everything that you have for us in the word of God, Lord. And so we pray that today and in the weeks and months and years to come that you would instruct us. And Lord, we togetherly now collectively ask for wisdom for me as the pastor, that you would help me to rightly divide the word of God. And that Lord, you would allow the word of God to pierce the very depth of who we are. And that as we journey through Hebrews, we would fall more in love with Jesus. Work this in us, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we won't even really study any passages of Hebrews today. We're just going to have an introduction. It's important that we become acquainted with a book before we dive into a study of it. It's important that we get the big picture. It will help us to understand the minutiae. And when we approach the book of Hebrews, we realize that it is all about Jesus Christ. No surprise, the whole of the book is about Jesus Christ, the Bible, amen? But as R. Kent Hughes says, Hebrews presents the greatness of Christ in ways that no other New Testament book does. As Arnold Fruchtenbaum says, the theme of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of the Son. As A.W. Pink says, The theme of Hebrews is the superabounding excellence of Christianity, the sum and the substance, the center and the circumference, the light and the life of Christianity, Jesus Christ. He's presented in the book of Hebrews like nowhere else. And like John MacArthur says, in this epistle, everything is presented as better, a better hope, a better covenant, a better promise, a better sacrifice, a better substance, a better country, a better resurrection, a better everything. Jesus Christ is presented here as the supreme best. And we are presented as being in him, 
and is dwelling in a completely new dimension that is the heavenlies. We read of the heavenly Christ, the heavenly calling, the heavenly gift, the heavenly country, the heavenly Jerusalem, and of our names being written in the heavenlies. Everything is new. Everything is better. And we no longer need the old. The book of Hebrews. Now, in the book of Hebrews, as I've previously alluded to, we will encounter some of the richest theology and deepest truths in all of Scripture. Let's just take a little survey of some of the passages that we'll be getting into. As you move to chapter 2, verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 14 through 18. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to the angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. What about Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12? Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast to the beginning of the assurance firm until the end. We're going to see all the way through the book of Hebrews, rich theological statements and declarations, and then warnings of application that needs to take place in our lives. What about Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 12? For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet is without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in the time of need. What about Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20? Speaking of Jesus, verse 19 of Hebrews 6, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus is entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Heavy theology. Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 26. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, speaking of Jesus, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. 
For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. What about Hebrews 11? Or excuse me, Hebrews 10 first, 19 through 25. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What about Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 6? Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God took him. And he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And then we have the incredible hall of faith there in Hebrews 11. What about Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3? Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And what about Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 through 16? Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Do you see the richness of the book? Do you see the wonders of the book? Do you see the theological weightiness of the book? And yet the practical application that we are exhorted to engage in in the book of Hebrews. I'll tell you, the book, of the, the book of Hebrews is going to transform our lives. As a church, it's going to transform our congregational life. As individuals, we're going to be transformed. But before we can gain a proper understanding of any book of the Bible, we need to grasp its general context. Very important. Before we can understand the true meaning of any book of the Bible, we need to grasp the general context. The first thing we want to know about the book of Hebrews is that as far as genre is concerned, it's an epistle. Epistle is just a fancy word for letter. 
You understand that when you're reading books like Galatians and Ephesians and so on and so forth, you're reading letters written by somebody to a church somewhere. The book of Ephesians was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church that was in a place called Ephesus. The book of Colossians, again, written by the Apostle Paul to the church in a place called Colossae. The book of 1 Peter, written by Peter to the churches in Asia Minor. So when we're reading these things, we're reading ancient mail, and yet mail that was inspired by God. And Hebrews is the same thing. It's an epistle. It's a little bit different. It doesn't have the same salutations. It starts off differently because this epistle is sermonic in nature. Sermonic, meaning it has the qualities of a sermon. It has personal details and and, and a connection with the hearers, to be sure. But when they opened it up and read it in the church where they read it, it was like a sermon to them at that time, and it reads as such. So as far as genre, the book of Hebrews is considered an epistle or a letter in the New Testament. Now, what we need to know concerning any epistle in the New Testament are these things. Number one, who wrote it? Number two, who was the original audience? Number three, when was it written? And number four, where the people lived, where they lived, those that received it. And these things will give us a grasp on the context, which will help us to determine the meaning of the text. These things give us a grasp on the context that helps us to determine the meaning of the text. That is, who wrote it, who they write it to, when was it written, and where they live. Now, concerning the book of Hebrews, we do not know who wrote it. We do not know when it was written. We do not know who they wrote it to, and we do not know where they lived. That is why Charles Barkley, excuse me, Williams Barkley, calls the book... Charles Barkley, what's he play, basketball or something? I don't know, dude. He probably said it too. William Barkley said that Hebrews is the riddle of the New Testament. Those general things that we rely upon to discern the context of a book, we don't have the full information with the book of Hebrews. It's the riddle of the New Testament, both contextually and even theologically. Now, as to who wrote it, there have been numerous suggestions throughout history. Many have suggested that Paul wrote the epistle to the Hebrews. And there's good reasons to believe that it was Paul, and there's more good reasons to believe that it wasn't Paul. Namely, stylistically, it's just not consistent with the many letters that we do have from Paul. But that's one of the strong suggestions. Others say that it's an unknown follower of Paul. That was suggested by the early church father Origen in the early 3rd century. Others say that it was written by Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Others say that it was written by Paul in Hebrew, but translated by Luke into Greek. The reason is that the Greek style is not that of Paul's, but the theology is very similar to Paul's. So that's a suggestion. Tertullian, at the beginning of the third century, suggested that it was Barnabas. Remember Barnabas, the son of encouragement, Paul's buddy? That he may have written the epistle. Some say it was Clement of Rome. Some say it was Silas. Some say it was Philip. Some say it was Priscilla, the woman. Remember Priscilla and Aquila from the book of Acts? Some say it was Apollos. Martin Luther was the one who first suggested Apollos, and it might be the most popular idea of today. And it could have been someone else entirely unknown to us. We don't know. The book doesn't say. The other epistles of Paul say Paul, an apostle of God by the calling of Christ Jesus, to the church in Ephesus, or Peter, 
an apostle of God to the churches in Asia Minor. There's a clear identification. There's no such thing in this book. We just don't know. But here's what we do know about the writer. A few things. Number one, we know that the writer was a male. We know that he was not female because in chapter 11, verse 32, the participle for the word tell is in the masculine. He says, I tell you. And it would be a masculine participle to agree with the writer. So he's obviously a male, unless the writer was a female trying to disguise herself as a male. Most likely the writer was a male. I know you ladies wanted it to be Priscilla. I kind of wanted to be Priscilla too, but it's not Priscilla. <laughs> Second thing we know for sure is that he was Jewish. There's no question about that as you look at the content of the book. We also know that he was very well schooled in the Old Testament and in Jewish philosophical thinking which is clear from the arguments that he employs to make his theological points in the book. We also know from the style of the Greek that whoever wrote it was an eloquent writer of sophisticated classical Greek. Some of the richest Greek in all the New Testament is in this book. We also know from chapter 13, verse 23, that he was associated with Timothy. He had a personal relationship with Timothy. Now, these characteristics, all of them put together, fit very well the person of Apollos. Apollos is spoken of in the book of Acts. In Acts 18, verse 24, he is called an eloquent Jew from Alexandria who is mighty in the scriptures and was able to, quote, powerfully refute the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah, Acts 18, 28. So when you put all those things together, it's very likely that it was, as Martin Luther suggested, the person of Apollos. But ultimately, there's just no way to be sure. Unlike the other books of the New Testament, we don't know who the human author was. Origen said this, as to who wrote the epistle, God knows the truth. But let me press upon you something a little deeper. We actually do know the truth who wrote the epistle, don't we? Because the Holy Spirit is the author of all scripture. It was penned by men, but it was authored by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is inspired by God. Theopneustos in the Greek. Theopneustos means God breathed. All scripture is God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So the word of God is authored by the spirit of God for the equipping of the man of God. There, that settles it. We know who did Hebrews. It was the Holy Spirit of God. And we'll just let it rest at that. As to whom the book was written, we have the title, the epistle to the Hebrews, but that's not connected with the document until the early uh, second century. It was an original part of the document. It's added later on for clarification. But the content makes it clear that the intended audience was very well versed in the Old Testament and the Jewish priesthood. So we can very easily reason that the group that this letter was written to were probably exclusively Jewish Christians. There may have been some Gentile Christians in their midst, but because of the content, it's very clear. It's the most Jewish book of the New Testament. It's very clear that it was written to Jewish believers. The content also makes it clear that it, like the other epistles in the New Testament, was written to a particular body. 
a group or a church gathering. It was not a general epistle for Jewish Christians worldwide. It was addressed to a certain body, although the exact location is unknown. But here's what we do know about that group. It was written to a church or a group who were Jewish Christians, as I said. They'd been established for some time. It was not a brand new church. We get that in chapter 5, verse 12. But they were trapped in immaturity, we see from the content of the epistle. But they were also marked by generosity, is very clear in the epistle. They had at some time in the past suffered persecution, but it's also clear in chapter 12 that in the future they're going to suffer even greater persecution. It's clear from chapter 13 that this church had good and godly leaders, but nevertheless, they were facing a crisis of faith. They were first century Jewish Christians who were in danger of giving up. Now, as to when the book was written, there's nothing in the book that positively identifies for us a specific date, but it is very clear in my mind that it would have been written prior to AD 70. Because what happened in AD 70? Thank you. The fall of Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed. Now you'll see throughout the book that the temple and the temple sacrifices are a point of reference continually used by the author to make his arguments for the supremacy of Christ. But he speaks of the temple sacrifices in the present tense as happening at the time of the writing. If it was written after 70 AD, it would have been in the past tense. No more sacrifices happened. R.T. France, in commenting on this, says, the author's argument focuses on the theme of a new approach to God that replaces the old system of priesthood and its sacrifices. To such an argument, the destruction of the temple in AD 70 would have proved an almost irresistible confirmation that the old system is finished, yet it is never mentioned. No doubt about it, if it had been after AD 70 and the temple were destroyed, the author of Hebrews would have mentioned it repeatedly. For example... Chapter 10, verses 1 and 2 would have read differently. Verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 10 says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Notice that the offering of the sacrifices in the original is in the present tense. In other words, he's saying these things are happening right now and continue to happen. If it was written after the destruction of the temple, which was a pivotal moment in the Middle East and in Israel, he would not have used the present tense. He would have said they'd ceased already. Verse 2 of chapter 10 says, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? But notice, because of the tense, they're obviously still being offered. So it was written, without a doubt in my mind, prior to 70 A.D., and for other reasons, because of when Timothy died, so on and so forth, we can conjecture that it was probably written in 66 or 67. A.D. 66 or 67. Now, that's just about 30 years, 30 plus years after the cross of Jesus Christ. The Gospels, at least the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were also written before the year 70 AD, just a little more than 30 years after the cross of Jesus Christ. Other books like Galatians were written even earlier. Galatians was written probably in AD 48, just about 15 years 
after the cross of Jesus Christ. Here's why that is fun for you and I, as students of scripture and defenders of the faith to know that Hebrews and the Synoptic Gospels were written just about 30 years after the cross of Jesus Christ. Here's why it's neat to know. Because people often claim about the Bible that the writing down of the events surrounding the person of Jesus and his ministry and the birth of Christianity were so far removed that they are full of developed myths and legends. You hear that all the time. Oh, the gospel's full of myths. Those things were written so far after. They've been so changed. That's not at all a historical picture of what happened. But what we know is that myths and legends do not develop in a time span of 30 years. Never in history, in any culture, anywhere. Widespread, deep-seated myths and legends do not develop over a few decades. It always takes a much larger period of time. When these things in the Gospels, in Hebrews, and other books were written and circulated, there were people still alive who were eyewitnesses to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ who could confirm or deny the widespread claims about who he was. These writings were circulated in the ancient world. And it is totally plausible to suggest that the events of 30 years ago could be recorded with a great degree of accuracy. For example, 30 years ago, for us, it was 1977. Who remembers 1977? Don't be ashamed. I remember 1977. I was five years old in 1977. I remember 1977. It was 30 years ago. What happened in 1977? Well, in January, Jimmy Carter becomes president. 39th president of the United States. You guys remember that, right? There's no question about that. February 4th, Fleetwood Mac releases the album Rumors. How many of you remember Fleetwood Mac's album Rumors? My dad had it, played it in his car all the time. I still have an old copy of his. Excellent album. I remember that, 1977. March 26th of 1977, Focus on the Families, founded by Dr. James Dobson. We still know Dr. James Dobson. It's only been 30 years ago. There's no myth or legend about the guy. April 8th, the punk band The Clash releases their debut album. Now, who remembers that album, The Clash? That was a good album. My mom bought it for me. 1977, my mom bought me The Clash. Remember that? Rock the Casbah. Remember that one? It was a good album. No legend about that. It was only 30 years ago. We remember that. May 17th, the Likud party, led by Menachem Begin, is elected in Israel. May 25th, Star Wars opens. <laughs> June 5th, 1977, the first Apple II computers go on sale. August 16th, Elvis Presley dies. November 19th, Egyptian President Anwar Sadat becomes the first Arab leader to officially visit Israel when he meets with Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin seeking a permanent peace settlement. That was historic and very big. Now, many of us remember these things. And these things are very clear to us. It was only 30 years ago. There's no legend or myth about these events. Maybe with the exception of Elvis. But other than that, there's no myth or legend that's developed around these events. It's very clear history. 
And there's people still alive who are there for those things. We can confirm or deny the historicity of any claims that are put forward about them. And it is the same in the Gospels. And it is the same in the book of Hebrews. There are men and women who are alive who could confirm or deny the historicity of the documents. And if they were bold-faced lies about the person of Jesus Christ, we would not be looking at them 2,000 years later as we are today. And beyond that, there was an oral tradition that we don't realize nowadays. You say, yes, 30 years ago, but those things were preserved for us in writing. Those things were preserved in pictures. But listen, there was an oral tradition in that day that we cannot even fathom. Do you understand that the first century Jewish male had the entire Old Testament memorized by the age of 13? The entire Old Testament memorized by the age of 13. There was an oral tradition and a commitment to memory of minutia and facts and details that we know nothing of in this day and age. And so it's nothing for them to record the events and the life and the truths of Jesus Christ. And then you factor into that, that it was God-breathed. And there's no question as to the validity of the New Testament. What we have before us is the authentic Word of God. And Hebrews was written just over 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, concerning the context, because we don't know where these Hebrew Christians were located, notice I use the term Jewish and Hebrew interchangeably. Because we don't know where these Hebrew Christians were located, we can't say very much about their particular context. For example, when we go to study the book of Colossians, we knew where Colossae was located. And there's stuff written about the city of Colossae in the first century. And we could open up books and we could read about what the culture was like, uh, who was a governor at that time, what was happening politically, the aqueduct system that was in the city, so on and so forth. The city of Ephesus, when we study the book of Ephesians, there's a whole lot we could study about that city and the culture during the time. The, the city of Corinth. There's volumes that can be studied and repeated about the city of Corinth at the time the book to the Corinthians was written. But see, we don't know where these Hebrew Christians were located, and so we're limited in what we could say about their specific context other than what could be deduced from the text itself. But... We can speak to the general context in the years just prior to 70 AD. The world was under the rule of the Roman Empire. And Nero was a Caesar in Rome. And Nero was a nutbag. This man was insane. In July of the year 64, Rome went up in flames. And the rumor was, the accusation was, that Nero himself had set the city ablaze. And in seeking to combat and discredit that accusation, Nero laid the blame at the feet of the Christian community in Rome. He claimed that the Christians had torched the city. So potent and vehement were his claims that by October of the year 64, just a couple months later, uncountable, innumerable amount of Christians had been crucified. They'd been thrown to wild dogs. They would be wrapped in the carcass of a dead animal, in the skin of a dead animal, and thrown to wild dogs to be torn to shreds. Others had oil poured all over their body. A post ran through them, 
And then were stood upright in the gardens of Nero to light them at night while he drove his chariot through his gardens. The things that Nero did to Christians in the years before 70 AD were so heinous that even Roman non-Christian citizens were saying, Nero, stop. And these were people who were used to blood sport. Peter was crucified upside down at this time under this regime and this persecution. Christianity became religio illicita, an illegal religion. Christianity was proclaimed illegal in the whole Roman Empire. And to be a Christian was a capital offense. To be a Christian became punishable by death under the rule of Nero. Now, prior to this time, Christians experienced persecution primarily from the Jewish sector of the population. It was, it, were, it was religious Jews that were persecuting Christians. And they were okay with the Romans. Now, it's coming from Rome itself. And so Christians, in the years just before 70 AD, when Hebrews was written, become hunted on every side. They're hated by the Jewish leaders and persecuted and pursued. And now they're hated by the Roman authorities and persecuted and pursued. And additionally... To add to this drama of the context, the struggle between Rome and Israel was reaching a crescendo. Israel was occupied by Rome. They were under Roman rule. And in the year 66, AD 66, there was a Jewish revolt where the Romans were expelled from Jerusalem. And in the north, the zealous, the, the, the zealots from Galilee who were called by one historian a volcanic people Simon the Zealot was from there. The Zealots up in Galilee had staged a great revolt against Rome, and Israel and Rome were heading towards inevitable conflict. And it was heating up by the moment. And Jewish Christians now, Hebrew Christians at this moment, were viewed as deserters of national Israel in a time of national crisis. So they're hated by their countrymen, viewed as deserters. And they're considered to be illegal in their religion, punishable by death by the ruling regime of the Romans. And so in the midst of all this, some of the Hebrews to whom this epistle was written were beginning to rethink their commitment to Christ. You see, at this moment in history, their commitment to Christ was earning them a whole lot of trouble. And Israel, after 66, appeared to be, for a moment, for a brief moment, gaining strength. And Israel had overturned great enemies before. And it appeared for a moment as though Israel would return to national sovereignty. And that spoke of the Messiah, Israel's messianic expectations. And some of the Hebrew Christians were beginning to think, if Israel's going to regain its national identity and sovereignty... The Messiah is going to have to play a role, but Jesus has already left. Maybe we missed the Messiah. Maybe it wasn't really Jesus. And maybe in this moment of national crises, we should be back in the fold of Israel. Maybe we we're wrong about Jesus being the Messiah and the fulfillment of all things. And as Christians, 
They weren't witnessing an expansion of the kingdom. They had all of a sudden become the outcasts and the weak and the murdered. And Christianity for them was not all that they thought it would be. And they're beginning to rethink their commitment to Christ. And it is for this purpose that the epistle to the Hebrews was written to warn these Jewish Christians of the folly and error of sliding back into the old life and to remind them that they have a better way in Jesus Christ and to exhort them of the joy that lay before them as they press on to maturity in Christ Jesus, as it says in Hebrews 6.1. Now in Hebrews 10, turn there. Hebrews 10, verse 32. Hebrews 10, verse 32. The author encourages the Jewish Christians thusly. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Okay, they've already been through some suffering for their faith. Partly by being made a spectacle through the reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. They were seeking to minister to people who were being persecuted for Christianity and they were identified with them and they themselves were persecuted. <laughs> Verse 34, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence at this time, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come, and he won't delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. He's encouraging them in their faith. You guys have seen hard times before. Stand firm in your faith. Their Christianity for them did not mean any worldly advantage. It set them up for persecution and the loss of property and privilege. And now it might even cost them their lives. And while simultaneously encouraging them to stand firm in the faith and remember that God has been faithful to bring them through tribulations, he lets them know that there's even greater, greater trouble coming. Chapter 12 Verse 3 and 4. Chapter 12, verse 3, the author says, For consider Jesus, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. He tells them, Remember Jesus. He's our example. Keep your eyes fixed on the author and the perfecter of our faith. Remember his example of suffering for righteousness sake so that you don't grow weary when the world is against you and you have not yet shed any blood, intimating that there would come a day where they would shed blood for their faith in Jesus Christ. It was going to get worse. And because of what lay before them and the pressure of the culture around them, some in the Jewish Christian church were already abandoning the body of worship. Go back to Hebrews 10, verses 23 through 25. 
the author encourages them in Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another toward love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see how he's begging and pleading with them? Don't throw away your faith. Don't give away your confidence. Remember Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes focused on him. And when the world gets gnarly, don't forsake meeting together with the brethren. Don't give in to the pressure. The church at this point had to go underground. In different places in the world today, the church is still underground. They don't neglect the, the gathering of themselves together. Now, so some of them were bailing out on the faith. Jesus told us in the parable of the sower and the soils that there would be situations and persons in times such as this. In Mark 4, 16, 17, and explaining the parable of the sower to the disciples, he says, and in a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. But they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction and persecution arise because of the word, immediately they fall away. Jesus said there would be people like that then. They heard the word, oh, this Jesus thing sounds real good. But when the going got tough, they would get out. And that's a condition some of these Hebrew Christians were facing. And that's a condition of a lot of Christians today. They like Christianity as long as it's easy. It's not easy for long, people. Can I get a witness? This is a condition of many Christians today. But perhaps for those of us who are in America... I'm not speaking for the church worldwide because there are horrible persecutions happening right now in Sudan. Horrific things in Eritrea. Unspeakable things in Saudi Arabia. Inhumane things in Indonesia. Crimes of historic proportions in China. And in India and other such places. But perhaps for those of us who are in the church in America, our threat, which causes us to shrink back and abandon the worship body, it's not that of persecution, but that of worldliness. And Jesus warned of this same thing in the parable. In verse 18, he said, And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word. But the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. That's more a picture of our situation that we face. And yet we need the same exhortation that was being given to the Hebrews to persevere in our faith. The church today is often found to be much like ancient Israel. Rejoicing in being delivered from bondage in Egypt, but not wanting to follow Moses into the promised land. They were content to spend time wandering in the wilderness. And many Christians today are happy to have been delivered from the judgment of hell, but they refuse to really follow Jesus into the abundant life in their daily experiences. They simply choose to survive in their immaturity, their carnality, and their mediocrity. And the book of Hebrews does not allow for it. The goal of the book of Hebrews is in chapter 6, verse 1, let us press on toward maturity. 
in Christ Jesus. In chapter 10, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. The book of Hebrews exhorted the audience then and exhorts you and I now to persevere and advance in our spiritual life and go on to full maturity, even in the face of difficulty and opposition. And the way that it achieves this goal is by presenting the person of Jesus Christ in all his glory. That is the way that the author achieves his goal is by presenting the person of Jesus Christ in all his glory. And you can picture the original audience when they received this epistle. A small group of believers gathered together in maybe a house church or a synagogue that had been converted for Christianity. And they're gathered together and they're huddled in fear. Their brothers by blood have forsaken them. They're called traitors by them. Their religion has become a capital offense. War is escalating all around them. Christians are falling to persecution. The prospect of spilling their own blood seems inevitable. And then this letter is delivered to them. And they open it up. And in reading the glorious first words, there comes back to their remembrance the person of Jesus Christ, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. And in a moment, these huddled, frightened Hebrew Christians see Jesus Christ in the word of God enthroned and mighty and shining forth in radiance. And they see him as seated in majesty enthroned over all the earth, which is his along with all it contains. And this frightened, failing faith of the Hebrew believer is renewed as they come face to face with the king of glory once again. The book of Hebrews presents the person of Jesus Christ like no other book. Look who Jesus is in just chapter one of the book of Hebrews. He is better than the prophets. He is better than the angels. He is the son of God and he is the heir of all things. He is the sustainer of the universe and the creator of the world. He is a radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. He is the high priest of perfection. He is seated at the right hand of majesty on high. He has a more excellent name. He is the one whom the angels worship. He is the exalted king. He's the Lord of righteousness. He's the anointed one, the eternal, the unchanging one. And he is the ultimate conqueror. And that is only chapter one. And there are 13 chapters of the glory of Jesus Christ that lie before us. 
It's going to be good. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this new season. Thank you for this fresh moment, this kairos, this opportune time. Lord, there's a sense of expectancy in us. Even a sense of holy foreboding as to why we're in the book of Hebrews at this moment in history. As we look at the world around us, certainly we need our faith encouraged. We need to be made steadfast. We need a fresh revelation of the person of Jesus Christ ruling and reigning over the world and in our lives. Thank you for this glorious word. Jesus, we now endeavor to worship you. We commit ourselves to enthrone you upon our praises now. To draw into the wonders of who you are. To rejoice in the truths of your word and your work. Holy Spirit, bring us near now to the heart of the Father. We want to have a rich experience in the weighty presence of God. Holy Spirit, come. And even through the word that's been read today, begin to do a deep work in our hearts, Lord. Come. Come, Lord.